Hermione Granger and the Silent Country. From There Is Nothing to Fear by Santissi Day. Read by Sam Gabriel. Based on the works of J.K. Rowling. Chapter 1 There is no death. Nothing is destroyed. But everything has changed. The fire consumes us, but we are the fire. There is no death. Tom Riddle, The Second Encanto 1987 Chapter 2 Look Both Ways The day before it happened, the Grangers were walking to the Arc de Triomphe. One might say walking to see the Arc de Triomphe, but that would be only two-thirds true. Hermione would have stayed back at the hotel had the matter been up to her. But of course it hadn't, so she didn't. And instead she was here, with one small hand closed around her father's fingers, and the other holding up a travel guide that she'd purchased on their first day in Paris. It was not her first choice of reading material, but Hermione was the sort of girl who would read the back of the cereal box, and there was nothing else her parents would let her take out of the hotel. The year was 1986, and Hermione was just over seven years old. It was autumn half-term, and she and her parents had gone over the Channel to vacation in Paris for the week. They had been to Versailles and to the Louvre, and they still had the Eiffel Tower to see tomorrow, to say nothing of several independently owned bookshops that had been recommended to Mr. and Mrs. Granger by a colleague of theirs. The promise of these bookshops, of course, was meant to keep their daughter on her best behavior. They would not make it to the Octa Triumph as planned. Hermione was many things, studious, dedicated, bookish, but she could also be absent-minded, and on this occasion she was very, very lucky, indeed luckier than any of them would have guessed at the time. As they went down the sidewalk, Hermione let go of her father so she could turn to the next page in her travel guide, engrossed in its account of the Mont Saint-Michel, which had been a monastery, then a prison, and almost at one point the home of a chivalric order. She failed to take her father's hand again. Unfortunately, the Grangers had taken a wrong turn and gotten lost once already today, so he was busy talking with her mother to make sure they were on the right path this time and maybe convince her to ask for directions. They came to another street crossing. The cars were moving, so the Grangers weren't, save Hermione, who kept going. Hermione went into the street. A car went into Hermione. There was a screech. There was screaming. And there was a rubbery kind of sound, and a bewildered, seven-year-old exclamation that faded a little as it went into the air, and then there was more screaming. A minute later, while her parents checked her over, and someone else called for an ambulance because she had to have broken a rib and probably more, Hermione finally began to cry. The travel guide had been torn. This should have been it. The event which the Grangers would forever refer to by a two-letter singular neuter pronoun, but this was only the prelude. What happened on the following day would be far more memorable than that time when Hermione was hit by a car and bounced rather than died. Instead of going to the Arc de Triomphe like more unflappable tourists might have done, the Grangers elected to stay back at their hotel the next day. The hospital nurse had told them Hermione was, miraculously, right as rain and the picture of health, but the affair with the car had still given her parents a scare, and they weren't in any mood for sightseeing. Mr. Granger, too, wanted to be near the phones in case the hospital realized they'd missed something and desperately needed to get in touch, and his wife, though more confident in the verdict of their French peers, was willing to oblige. 
None of them, neither Mr., Mrs., or smallest Granger, noticed the silver tabby that sat outside the hotel all that morning, nor that their room service was thirty minutes late, but they all heard when a knock came at the door. Hermione's father stood to get it, expecting to find the kitchen salads that they'd called for an hour earlier, but he found instead a tall and severe-looking woman, flanked by another woman who was slightly taller and seemed much more approachable. "'Hello, Mr. Granger,' said the first woman, and then to the rest of the room, "'Hello, Mrs. Granger, and hello, Hermione.' There was an unexpected warmth in her voice for that last greeting, and she leaned over a bit, closer to Hermione's level as she said it. "'I'm afraid you know us better than we know you. Are you at the hospital or with the hotel?' said Mr. Granger. "'Wait now,' he exclaimed almost immediately. "'You're Scottish, aren't you? Did you get your room mixed up? Wait, no.' as he trailed off in the manner of one who'd noticed that there were several ways to fit together most of the facts at hand, but none by which they could all be fit together. "'I am Vespera Rousse, and Hermenever McGonagall,' said the other woman, who certainly wasn't Scottish if her accent was anything to go by. "'We are argent, pardon, oros, from the, comment dit frontier department,' she continued." and all three of the Grangers gasped at the same time that McGonagall gave a little sigh. Hermione was the quickest to reply. "'You're from the government?' She didn't know how to feel about that. It was very unexpected, and a diet rich in crime novels had taught her that it was a worrisome thing for the government to show up at your door unannounced. But on the other hand, she had also read a number of spy novels, and she was an honest, hard-working citizen, or her parents were at least, and Hermione worked hard in school if that counted for anything, so maybe she ought to be excited instead.' "'Everyone should take a seat first, said McGonagall, who paused just long enough to direct a stern look at her companion. "'What we have to say may come as a shock, and it might be for the best if no one is on their feet.' There were not enough chairs for everyone, as it turned out, but there was a desk, so the chairs were moved around. Hermione settled herself on the edge of the desk, and her parents returned to the business of their unexpected visitors. "'You were saying?' said Mrs. Granger. "'It'll be easier to show you first, and then continue from there,' said McGonagall. She took out a pretty-looking polished stick, muttered something which Hermione couldn't quite catch, and then turned into a silver-furred cat. Before anyone could react, she was a tall, severe-looking woman in a tartan suit again. "'You turned into a cat!' shouted Hermione's father. "'You're a cat!' exclaimed Hermione. "'I mean, you were one,' she said." to cover her momentary impression that McGonagall was a cat who sometimes turned into a person. "'It is a useful skill,' McGonagall stated before she launched into the customary, "'I turned into a cat, now here's the rest of the story, magical orientation for muggle-borns and their muggle-parents talk. There were occasional detours in the lecture, levitating books or turning the ceiling various shades of blue, but these were less to assuage the Granger's doubts than to stoke Hermione's breathless fascination with it all.' It had been so long since McGonagall had been there for a Muggleborn's first introduction to magic, and she didn't have it in her to speed the conversation along. "'So when Hermione was hit by that car,' said Mr. Granger, he adjusted his glasses. "'That was her accidental magic case,' answered LaRousse. "'Otherwise she would have been terribly hurt, as everyone expected.' "'The doctor said I was a very lucky girl,' Hermione said. McGonagall nodded in agreement. "'For more reasons than one,' "'That's why we're here, in fact. "'Under ordinary circumstances, "'we wouldn't make contact with you for a few more years, "'and this conversation will be happening in Britain "'with a representative from the British School of Magic, Hogwarts.' "'Which you used to work at, you mentioned,' said Hermione's mother, 
and she jotted something down in her pocket notebook. But instead we're talking now in France, and you're from the, um, frontier department. The Department de la Frontière, yes, said the Russe. With that care of the border security, the immigration, and the tourism, it is a harder job than you might think. And the most everyone can... The Russe looked over to McGonagall. Transplanet? Apparate, McGonagall supplied. Apparate? Mrs. Grange repeated with a questioning tone. LaRue stood, made a little gesture with her own stick, and teleported two feet to the left with a loud cracking noise. Hermione clapped and called for her to do it again, and LaRue gave a small bow and teleported back to her original position, sitting in place and all. That is apparate for you? Apparition, as a noun, McGonagall supplied again, and LaRue shrugged. What you must understand, continued McGonagall, is that there was a war in the British magical community only a few years ago between our government and a group of terrorists who called themselves the Death Eaters. It lasted for several years. A considerable number of people were killed, and then in 1982... Her shoulders sagged. We lost, and that should be apparent. We wouldn't be speaking like this here and now if it were otherwise. But how? asked Hermione's mother. Even if you were trying to hide yourselves, something like a war would get out, we would notice. You did notice? And then it was covered up? Do you remember when the IRA killed more than a thousand people in London five years ago? You're saying that wasn't the IRA, her father said. It was a dragon. Dragons are real too, exclaimed Hermione. Very much so, McGonagall said. The Ministry of Magic was never able to conclusively prove anything, but we suspect it was done at the orders of a man named Tom Riddle, who was their leader then, and is probably in control of Wizarding Britain now. Our mermaid's real too, interrupted Hermione, still hoping for some answers. What do you mean probably? asked her mother. Shortly after Riddle's faction took control of the Ministry, all passage in and out of the country was barred, McGonagall explained. Spells were erected to prevent magical travel and to detect, as best as they could, any witches or wizards who tried to enter or leave the British Isles by other means. The only people who escaped, like myself, either left before this cordon was put in place or immediately afterwards, while there were still flaws. How long has it been? Three years and a few months since the last of us got out. That means that we can't be sure what's happening over there, and what I'm about to tell you may be wrong. I don't think that's so. But I don't want you to be under any false impressions. We're only drawing conclusions from what the Death Eaters said they were going to do, and from a few clues we have gotten from other places. Thank you. What do you think is going on? said Hermione's mother, her pen at the ready. The most direct danger to your family is that the Death Eaters were planning to abduct muggle-born children as soon as they were discovered. If your daughter had displayed her talents earlier in life, then we think she would have been put in a kind of orphanage for muggle-borns, and the Death Eaters would have used magic to alter your memories and make you believe she had died in an accident. I don't want to go to an orphanage! Her father fidgeted with the right temple of his glasses. And, and you think... "'That's been happening to to other children,' her father said. McGonagall nodded. "'It is impossible to be certain. "'We can only look at the data your government makes publicly available "'and do our best with that information, "'but that is what we believe is happening. "'So this man is stealing children, "'and nobody's doing anything about it?' asked Mr. Granger. 
You called it the Ministry of Magic. That doesn't sound like an independent government to me. Why aren't they being restrained by somebody? Who's he supposed to be answering to? For better or for worse, our worlds have mostly been operating separately from each other for the past few centuries. But besides that, your government has probably been compromised, the Rus answered. You have your own country, though, don't you? You work for a different magical government. Why aren't they doing anything? We have done something, like you said, answered the Rus. Maybe we weren't able to do as much as you would like, but we are talking to you now because his most Christian majesty, the king, has asked us to investigate promptly every case of accidental magic within our borders, just in case a British child is responsible, and you can thank Mendalva for that. This is the first time someone has been located, and this program would never have seen the light of day, let alone go on for so long without her determination. McGonagall smiled at that, then replied to Mr. Granger along a different route. Around the time of the Second World War, we witches and wizards were fighting a war of our own against a wizard who preached magical supremacy and who wanted to enslave non-magical people. Wizard Hitler, then, said Hermione's mother. I know who Hitler is. He's the— Hermione began, but the rest of her response was lost as the adults kept talking. The Russ's face bespoke incomprehension, but McGonagall nodded readily. Quite— Unfortunately, many of the countries that fought against him did not do so because they opposed the first of those principles, but because the second, the enslavement of your people, would have entailed revealing our existence to you, and that was what they could not accept. For that reason, some people actually don't think that anything wrong is going on in Britain, and most of the rest of us are looking for any excuse to maintain the peace. Is Riddle a German too? Hermione asked, speaking more loudly this time. No. McGonagall said, and then, returning her attention to the elder Grangers, "'We live long lives, so the wounds of the last war are still fresh for many of us, and our numbers increase slowly, so we have yet to fully recover from the death toll. Accordingly, the ICW, that's the International Confederation of Wizards, that are much like the United Nations, is willing to let things be for now.' "'It's appeasement, then,' Mrs. Granger spat, her tone making clear what she thought of that. "'In their defence. Riddle has given no indication of wanting to extend his rule beyond Britain. As cowardly as it may be of them to leave them alone, they have every reason to believe that if they restrain themselves, then we really will have, what was the phrase, peace in our time. The ACW raison d'etre and first concern is to enforce the statute of secrecy anyway, and they are willing to overlook many sins as long as it can be assumed that Riddle's government is doing this in the name of secrecy and security. McGonagall frowned. There has even been talk, minimal, thank Merlin, but present all the same in papers and in the halls of power, of doing likewise in other countries. Appeasement, repeated Mrs. Granger, and McGonagall deferred with a light smile. As you see, she allowed. But this presents a problem. I will not say that Hermione cannot return to Britain, because that is a choice which your family must make. But you can see why I would recommend against it. We're not going to just leave it with you, said Mr. Granger. And he put an arm around Hermione. Of course not. Then what are we... Mr. Granger, if you will allow me, there may be a solution. From within her robes, McGonagall retrieved a pair of important-looking papers and handed them over. As her father looked over his paper, his grip loosened and Hermione was able to pry it out of his hands. To her disappointment, the writing was all in a lot of French. 
You will find, if you wish, that you are all naturalized French citizens. Your dental licenses will all be in order too, and you will have a French passport, so that the two of you can travel to Britain to settle affairs and visit your relatives. Reddle has no knowledge of you, but if Hermione performs the slightest bit of accidental magic, then the Death Eaters will probably take notice and take action. Mrs. Granger nodded, then looked back at the paper in her hand. This looks very official. It is a very simple thing to reproduce non-magical documents, explained McGonagall. Men of a damn place your talents. It requires a careful eye also, the Roos interjected. We have been authorized to assist you in other matters as well. We understand that it can be difficult to find housing on short notice, and we can, of course, make sure that you find something appropriate to your needs. But how? This isn't just paperwork. There's other things. There are other people. Someone's going to remember. Oh, you have something for that too, don't you? McGonagall nodded. Nothing that is damaging or invasive, I assure you. There is a wrinkle, however said LaRose. Hermione must receive a magical education. For her safety, and not of others, she must do so, LaRose insisted. As Mr. Granger moved as if to say something, now well, she's young, Hermione's accidental magic is mostly a good thing, sometimes worrying, but what if she were twenty years old and didn't know how to control her magic then? This would be very dangerous. She must learn. But Hermione will have a choice of schools, ultimately. Yes, answered LaRose, with a light air of reluctance about it. However, Beaupetant is unique in that it is an onboarding process to acclimate her. Classes are taught in French, but students have come from all over Europe, from Belgium to Sicily, so there are classes to prepare all students. Hermione's parents exchanged a look with each other, the sort with eyes involved. And then Mrs. Granger spoke. You're being very supportive, but we still have to make sure that we're doing right for Hermione's future— and not just trying to make a comfortable present. What are her career prospects likely to be? Career prospects? The roast raised her eyebrows. Bobbeton is a great... McGonagall shot her a stern look, and the roast paused a moment before continuing. Bobbeton is one of the greatest schools for magic in Europe, if not the world. Suffice it to say that she will not lack for career prospects. Magical career prospects, you mean? Mrs. Granger clarified while LaRousse evidently processed the idea that there might be any other sort. And that is correct. But what if Hermione decided she didn't want to get a career in magic? Does Puppeton teach other things as well? Could she get into a university, having spent a time in a school nobody's heard of? There are arrangements for a university education after Puppeton, if Hermione wishes it, said McGonagall. And the curriculum will permit her to prepare for this, though such preparations will not be required. In Transfiguration, she will learn something of physical substances, and she may pursue alchemy to learn more, though she will still have some catching up to do with regard to non-magical science if she is interested in advanced courses. Astronomy will include higher maths as well. On other matters, there is a specialized course in learning called Non-Magical Studies, and if Hermione has a certain path in mind, then she'll be able to focus her studies somewhat on law or business practices or something of that nature. Hermione looked up from trying to read her father's French documents. Is a magical law magical or just about magic? What would a law that's magical be called? McGonagall took a long, measured look at Hermione, then pulled, from thin air, a stack of glossy brochures and held them forward. As Hermione watched, 
the curly French words straightened out into austere English ones. Thus dismissed, but hardly realizing it, Hermione lost herself in a mess of school club pamphlets and charm masonry advertising, and by the time she got tired of letters that followed your finger and monochrome carriages that moved like video on paper, McGonagall and LaRousse were gone, and Hermione's parents were ready to talk with her about their mutual future. There were many things about the transition which were easy, finding a flat in Paris, securing a buyer for their old home, opening an office and finding clients among their fellow expats, and even, once they got the knack of it, trying not to wonder how much these things had been assisted by magic. It was more difficult to explain the decision to Hermione's grandparents. It was more than difficult. The schools are better down here. Every explanation was weaker than the last. People aren't afraid of dentists in France. Her grandparents knew that something was being kept from them. We, we just... It can't be explained. It can't be said. Every month or two, one parent or the other would take the train up to Calais for the weekend. Hermione came along, of course, a stack of paperbacks beneath her seat, and little Miranda, too, when she entered the picture nearly two years later. They'd set up in a hotel on Friday night and go out for fish and chips, and then on Saturday morning they'd wait for Mrs. Granger's parents to come across on the ferry. Grandma Mary would try, and fail, to teach Hermione a little chess strategy, and they'd eat mohawk cheese on Canterbury tarts and watch the ships go by. She'd walk with Grandpa David and visit bookstores that became more familiar to her than the lines of her palms, and as her proficiency with French grew too, she'd translate more and more for him until it was equal odds who was escorting whom. Hermione noticed only a little, and only as she got older, that there seemed to be something wrong about it all. They were happy to see her, but every time that they asked a question that she couldn't answer, wasn't allowed to answer, it hurt them. But they loved her, and she loved them, and they made it work. Within the limits of their situation... LaRousse offered to confund or maybe confund us, her grandparents, to do something to their minds, make them more accepting of the situation, but they were not, under any circumstances, to be told. It is the way of things, she told Hermione's parents, and even were it not, their knowledge would endanger your daughter. They still live where we do rules. The offer was never accepted. The violation that it implied, that it necessitated, was unconscionable. But once or twice over the years, on a lonely day, Mrs. Granger did consider it. They were her parents, her husband's having died a few years before that momentous vacation that would never end, and it would be a betrayal most of all to come from her. But they were her parents, and it was her relationship, not her daughter's, which suffered the most. There was another reason to visit Calais, though Hermione took care not to mention it in front of her parents. The sea is calm tonight, the tide is full, the moon lies fair upon the straits, wrote the poet Matthew Arnold, and twice a year, when the skies were clearest and the moon would be very dark or shine just as bright, Hermione went back to view the straits with Minerva McGonagall. She could see the cliffs there, white chalk and black flint, and people, boats, and fine sand, just thirty kilometers across the sea and further away than any apple was from the grasping fingers of Tantalus, for all that Hermione could ever go there. Hermione and McGonagall would walk a little, sometimes even wander further in town, then go somewhere with a good pizza or lasagna, and eat at an outdoor table while the sun dipped below the horizon. Then, cast in darkness, the world would come alight of itself, Dover and Calais glowing together, and when the moon shone, its dappled reflection would float on the surface of the waters like a spirit. "'Tell me more about Beaubaton,' Hermione might request, or when she was older and she had seen it for herself. 
Why do Muggleborns happen? Or, what makes Animaguses different from Autotransfigurers? Hermione, McGonagall might gently chide, these are not my office hours. Other times, especially on warm evenings when the sun was late in setting, they might talk for hours on the relationship and the differences between transfiguration and transfigurative potions. McGonagall had never been able to resist the pull of teaching for long in any country. And when it seemed that Hermione was the only British Muggleborn she might have refined, it had been easy to take an assistant professorship and teach again. Do you miss Britain? was something that Hermione never asked. Why ask when the answer was already in her own heart? But for all that McGonagall might miss Britain as well, for many years Hermione considered her to be the lucky one. At least McGonagall had five decades to remember it by, whereas her own life in Britain was as faint and hazy as the cliffs of Dover on a foggy day, or a dream fast fading in the morning light. There were days when she didn't feel like a stranger here in France, but then there were days when she felt as though she had no home at all. Hermione and McGonagall said very little to each other on the train back from Calais. It was enough for them to have the company. For the full text of this and other stories by the same author, visit the archive of our own page of Call Me Saltisside. The music is Amon Ra by Days Witch, under a Creative Commons license, with assistance from 1T1. If you would like to commission me to record a story, voiceover, or character, please get in touch with me using the contact information on my website, which is located at samgabrielvo.com. And there you can find other stories that I've read, as well as links to my Patreon page, to which I hope you consider subscribing to support me, and my Discord server, where I record things live for your enjoyment. And finally, as always, Thank you for listening.